Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Со двора подъезд известный под названием Черный ход В том подъезде, как в поместье, проживает черный кот Он в усы усмешку прячет, темнота ему, как щит Все коты поют и плачут Hello everybody, welcome to another edition of New Books in Russia and Eurasia Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Every podcast, I talk to an author about their new book on Russia or Eurasia. In this episode, I spoke with Andrew Gentis about his book, Exile, Murder, and Madness in Siberia, 1823-1861. The Russian practice of exiling criminals, dissidents, and other social marginals to the remote corners of Siberia began in the 16th century as the Russian state conquered new lands in the east. The practice continued throughout the Tsarist period, and the Soviets expanded it into the vast system known as the Gulag. In the sequel to his Exile to Siberia, 1590-1822, Andrew Gentis' Exile, Murder, and Madness in Siberia, 1823-1861, focuses on the reign of Nicholas I, when an estimated 300,000 people were sent to Russia's east. But as Gentis notes, the Tsarist exile system was more than a means of categorizing, punishing, and policing the Russian population for the economic interests of the state. Drawing on Michel Foucault's notion of governmentality, Gentis also shows that the exile system was emblematic of the struggle between the sovereignty of the Tsar and the emerging multi-layered and dispersed authority of the modern bureaucracy. Left in between this clash are stories of malfeasance by local administrators, the endurance and survival of political prisoners, and the fate of thousands regulated to Russia's margins. Here's my interview with Andrew Gentis. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Sean. Welcome to New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies. Thanks very much. And thanks for taking the time to talk about your book, Exile, Murder, and Madness in Siberia, 1823 to 1861. Uh, Just to start off, uh, why don't you tell us about yourself and how you got interested in the Tsarist exile system? Well, I uh, started my um, tertiary education, you might say, back in... um, uh, the mid '80s, and I got a degree at Keene State College, and then I—it uh, was while I was there that I had taken a course in Russian history, and uh, that had very much piqued my interest in things Russian. Um, I found it a lot more um, compelling, it seems, um, than the the courses that I was taking in primarily American history up until that point. And uh, I also, uh, while I was an undergraduate there, um, read um, my first Dostoevsky. I read Crime and Punishment. And I was like, oh, well, this is a whole other kettle of fish. So this was an area that I, that I was quite much more interested in, though at that time when I graduated, I wasn't entirely sure that I wanted to continue on and try to get my Ph.D. So... I guess uh, I took a year off after graduating, and then I attended uh, a uh, program at the University of California at Riverside. So did I, by the way. Oh, did and I didn't know that. Yeah, oh, I got my master's degree there. Okay, well, I stayed long enough to get a master's, 
Um, and it was my good fortune, and I hadn't planned this because I was such a naive, but I went out there, and uh, lo and behold, there was this um, kind of young scholar at the time who had been making waves with his book on the purges, and this happened to be J. Archgetty. He was my advisor. <laughs> okay, well, he was my advisor while I was there, and I know that uh, you've interviewed him for his, his new book. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed that interview. But anyways, he, um, you know, was uh, was uh, kind of, a, as I said, uh, he had just published his book, The Origins of the Great Purges, and this, of course, had attracted a lot of interest, both pro and con. Um, and so this was yet another incentive to to focus more heavily, though you couldn't at that time really precisely become just a Russian historian, I think, at least in the program that existed when I was there. But then there was another scholar who arrived while I was there, and that was uh, Stephen Frank. And um, his area, of course, uh, was uh, peasant justice uh, in the pre-Soviet period, during the Tsarist period. And uh, now both of those scholars have since moved on, and they're both at, at UCLA. But the combination of, of, of Getty's kind of maverick style of scholarship um, and... Um, Stephen Frank's interest in justice um, really intrigued me. And um, while I was there, I uh, took a class with Stephen Frank, and one of the term papers that I wrote um, was this uh, kind of, as I look back on it now, kind of superficial survey of, of the Siberian exile system with a heavy reliance upon George Kennan, uh, the elder. Because, of course... Um, Really, besides George F. Kennan, and now, if I may say so, yours truly, um, there was there's almost nothing published uh, in English about the pre-Soviet Siberian exile system, and this was something that Stephen Frank had pointed out to me as saying, you know, this is kind of interesting. So it it was actually kind of made for a kind of bit of a challenge to just write a term paper, um, but it was a topic that immediately interested me, um, and um, However, I did, after three years, find that I was kind of losing my way at, at UCR, uh, and I decided once again that it was time for me to kind of take a break and, and reassess what I was doing. So I, I stayed long enough to get the, the master's degree, and then I um, came back east, uh, where I'm from originally, and I was kind of debating whether or not to go to law school or to try to go back into graduate school at some point. So then I think another perhaps year and a half or two years uh, went by, and um, I was fortunate enough to be accepted on my uh, second application to Brown University. Um, and I wanted to go to Brown University specifically because by that point I'd become familiar with um, Abbott Gleason, or Tom as he prefers to be known, uh, Tom Gleason's uh, book, Young Russia. And um, I had met him already. He seemed like a nice guy. He had answered a letter that I'd sent to him about his book and so on, sort of a little bit of fan mail. Uh, and I just sort of thought, you know, Brown would be a pretty good place to try to get a PhD. So I ended up going down there, and um, eight years later, 2002, I got my PhD. And uh, by that time, I had written this mammoth dissertation um, that covered the entire history of the pre-Soviet Siberian exile system, uh, 
yeah, I almost uh, perished in the attempt, but I managed to complete it anyways. And I had, by that time, too, spent a fair number of, a uh, fair amount of time in, in Siberia itself. Uh, for my dissertation research, I had spent three months in, the, in, uh, in Vladivostok, and I had taken the Trans-Siberian Railroad to Irkutsk, where I spent another four months. And then I rode the railway the rest of the way to uh, Moscow, where I finished up with another two months in the archives there. So I had had my, my kind of germinal uh, Russian experience, and I'd gotten some pretty good materials. And uh, I do believe that I'd, you know, been perhaps not the first American or Westerner to research in, in, uh, in these archives and so on, but I was certainly a novel appearance at that time. I would imagine. Yeah, because they, they weren't quite used to foreigners there in, a, in either Vladivostok or, or Irkutsk. So it was a real thrill. It was real exciting uh, to be there and that type of thing. And then after that, I, I bounced around uh, in the United States for about a year uh, with a few positions until I finally um, improbably ended up in, um, in Australia, where I, uh, uh, where I interviewed for and was, was given a uh, tenure-track position at the University of Queensland. And I stayed there uh, for six years uh, teaching and working doing research and uh, managed to complete uh, my first book and that covers the, the period of exile prior up, up until 1823. Uh, and I also published a translation of, um, of, of Vlas Dorishevich's book on the Sakhalin penal colony, um, which incidentally, if I can make a plug for it, it's coming out in paperback this, this month. Oh, the wonderful. Press. I yeah. was wondering about that. Yeah, it's it's again it's rather prohibitively expensive as a as a hardcover, but I think now it's going to be a little bit more uh, affordable for students. So, anyways, that's coming out this next month. And then um, I had kind of um, uh, there were a few problems, let's put it that way, about the the history program at at U, UQ down in um, Australia, and I found that the life of a foreigner even a English-speaking foreigner in an English-speaking country is not always uh, as easy as you might think it is. So I was more than ready to, to leave when I did in 2009. And fortunately, by that point, I had lined up a couple of six-month uh, fellowships, the first of which was at the Slavic Research Center in the University of Hokkaido, um, a place that I had long wanted to go. And the six months that I spent uh, at Hokkaido were or living in Hokkaido and researching there at the center were just blissful. I mean, it's a beautiful town, Sapporo, and the people there were fantastic. And the, that part of Japan, at least, is is just absolutely gorgeous. And it was there that I managed to finish the manuscript for the book that we're talking about today. Um, and then I had a, a second six-month fellowship, um, a Kluge research fellowship, uh, at the Kluge Center in um, in the Library of Congress, and similarly, it was just a, a wonderful experience there. The staff at the Kluge were fantastic. You had nothing to do but write and research, um, and so uh, I worked on a manuscript that is somewhat in abeyance right now, but tentatively, it is about 
it's something of a biography of George Kennan to the extent that it talks about the relationships that he formed with um, the various Russian revolutionaries and Russian dissidents he met not only during his famous visit there to the exile system in, in 1885, 1886, but also uh, afterwards and the relationships uh, that he established with these people during subsequent visits to primarily uh, England, and then how these relationships uh, evolved over time and how Kennan himself evolved and uh, had his sort of changing um, personal views and changing attitudes towards Russia. So this is this is kind of a project that is, as I said, is a little bit interrupted now, but I hope to finish it, you know, at some point in the future. Hmm. Well, I can't, I look forward to that one since he's such an important figure for, he really for, is for and, Russian and studies. Absolutely. And not only that, but I realized that this guy was actually an, an a, a quite significant figure in American letters in the late 19th century. And He's really, in a sense, been been overlooked, but he was, you know, a, 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 a friends with a lot of important people, um, and he, by far, at least until about 1900, 1905, he, by far, really influenced the way that not only Americans, but also um, the British viewed Russia. Um, his, his portrayal of Russia was crucial in, in establishing the kind of image, you might say, of Russia in the American popular mind and even in the political mind. You know, yeah. David Forley's own talks a lot about this in his book, um, uh, now that the name of it is completely escaping me. But anyways, on, on the American mission and, and exactly, which evil I've empire. Consulted. Yeah, and he, and, he, and he does have a fair amount of information, though. Um, and and, and I, I've consulted his book. I do want to try to, as I said, keep the focus on Kennan himself. Uh, and Fogelsong t- tends to kind of focus a little bit more on the on the 20th century, um, but he does give you a good kind of introduction to the significance of Kennan and and that whole uh, milieu that that um, he was contributing to during the late 19th century. And this notion again that that Russia has always, in a sense, has has always been viewed in a with different criteria, you might say than other countries. And there's a very strange love-hate relationship between the United States and Russia that continues to the present. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's move on to the book itself. And okay. I know that uh, Exile, Murder, and Madness in Siberia is your, the second book on the, the history of the exile system. I'm assuming this taken from that large dissertation you completed. Um, yes. Why don't you briefly describe what the Tsarist exile system is and, and what its purpose was. Okay, well, the Tsarist exile system begins in the in the late 16th century, and it's largely for the purpose of removing um, groups of peasants um, to Siberia, where they are meant to serve primarily as food producers for the Cossacks. And the Cossacks are very busy during the the 16th and especially the 17th century and even the 18th century in acquiring uh, furs, the Yasik contributions from the natives that so enriched the, the Romanovs and, and Russia itself during that time. So one of the points that I make in the, early, in the first book 
is that from the very beginning, we have to understand that exile served a very utilitarian statist function. Uh, that even though people were flogged and were mutilated in somewhat horrible ways, there was a duality to Russian penality. And this consisted of making use of these bodies once these criminal bodies had, as I said, been scourged but then transported to the place that they needed to be used. And so you had an interesting dynamic that took place, whereby for many centuries, once an exile, either if he was a criminal exile or if he was simply a transported peasant, um, once these people reached Siberia proper, they had, in a sense, expiated their crimes. And they were now treated very almost indistinguishably from non-exiles and non-criminals and expected to serve as state peasants. Um, oftentimes, too, as we move further into the mid-17th uh, century, there is a good proportion of people who are sent to Siberia as prisoners of war, and they're enrolled in the Cossacks and in another kind of uh, group of armed um, um, men, uh, collecting Yasek and, and guarding fortresses and so on. And these were known as the Litva, which is a sort of catch-all term for, for prisoners of war. But there is something important that happens uh, in 1649, and this is, of course, the, the Ulegenie, or the law code of that, that time, which, in addition to codifying the final vestiges, you might say, of, of serfdom, not coincidentally, also codifies for the first time the punishment of exile to Siberia. Even though exile had been codified in a different form prior to that, it had never specified Siberia, Siberia precisely. And even though people had been sent to Siberia before that, that punishment itself had never been formally codified. So when you have this codification in the mid-17th century, and in a sense opens the floodgates towards a what one historian, 19th century historian, called a casuistic approach to justice, whereby the crown uh, was quite intent on, on creating a large number of, of laws that could be broken and could then be punishable by lifetime banishment to Siberia. And so all historians uh, agree that from the mid 17th century onwards, there is a quite rapid increase in the number of people who get sent to exile in Siberia each year. Then the next major thing that, that increases the reliance upon exile comes along in the mid-18th century. And this is when both empresses uh, Elizabeth Petrovna and uh, Catherine II after her um, pass uh, regulations that give to both uh, surf owners, as well as vig uh, village uh, communal societies, abshestva, um, exilic authority. That in other words, they can exile people to Siberia through administrative procedures that bypass entirely the judicial organs of the government. And the reason for this is quite explicit, that Catherine II especially wants people to settle Siberia. She needs colonists. But she needs colonists at the very time that she's ensurfing most of the Russian peasant population. So, so, so you've got this contradiction in terms. You, you're bonding people to the land in the European Russia, but you want people to move to the land in Siberia. So how do you get this done? Well, one of the ways that you get this done 
is by essentially paying land owners or serf owners to hand over their peasants and in return they would get a bounty as well as um, as well as credit towards their recruit military recruitment levies and then these poor you know peasants that had done absolutely nothing uh, would be marched out to Siberia and and again put to use mostly as as uh, peasant food producers for the Cossacks and, and for the increasing military presence out there. So that, that greatly increases the number of people that get sent to Siberia uh, until we get to uh, a situation in the early 19th century whereby uh, the numbers are growing. Uh, I wouldn't say that they're expanding enormously, but they're growing significantly, certainly in comparison to the previous centuries. But you've also got a completely rapacious local administration there that is treating these people uh, like slaves. It's, re it's, 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 it's responsible for the, um, for the, for the, uh, for the, um, you know, early death of a lot of the people that are sent out there. Um, conditions are just horrible. Uh, people are, are able to flee these, assigned locations with relative ease. And so that, again, is adding to the chaos. And finally, after many years of complaints, Alexander I wakes up to the problem, and he realizes that he has someone that he can send out there. And this is his disgraced former counselor, uh, Mikhail Speransky, who you'll remember had gotten into an imbroglio involving the French minister or something like that and was something of a casualty of the, of the Napoleonic Wars. So he takes Speransky out of what is essentially his enforced house arrest, which was by that time, I think, in Novgorod, and he names him governor of Siberia, governor general of Siberia. So Speransky becomes the administrator of this vast territory, this enormous territory that stretches from the Urals to the, to the Pacific Ocean, and he institutes eventually what become... Uh, with the help of the Siberian Committee, the 1822 Siberian Reforms. It consists, the reforms do, uh, of various provisions and so on, but the ones that are most concerned to, to, to me are the ones that attempt to regulate the exile system, that, it's, that literally systematize the, 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 the exile process. And he creates a very elegant system that I detail once again, in the first book and so on. But it's based upon a kind of um, naive assumption that you're going to have a constant rate of about 2,000 exiles per annum, if that. Now, what happens is immediately after these reforms go into effect, there is a rapid increase in the number, the annual number of people who get exiled to Siberia. And this reaches uh, within, I think, about seven years, uh, that is to say by about 1829, something on the order of about 10,000 people get exiled to Siberia that year alone. So what you have is a, a, a system that is, is actually, you know, in its various uh, aspects is quite um, progressive, especially when we compare it to the penal systems, for example, in the United States at that time. But it, it is not in any ways able to handle this sudden surge, as I refer to in Chapter 1, of people being exiled during this period. Mm -hmm. And so it begins to break down rather quickly. 
And now then, there's oh yeah go ahead no I was going to say that that so the the purpose of this system seems to be a, a several fold one is the the removal of of undesirables from various communities absolutely and then their re reallocation to some instrumentalism of the state whatever that may be precisely yeah. um, and then uh, also to try to extract some kind of labor out of them too if you can now now that labor could for the most part that labor would consist ideally of them simply functioning as state peasants right, um, right. and and you know they would do what state peasants do they would repay in either obrokobarshina you know um, money or kind or then you also had and i should have mentioned this uh, as well as a, as a as a watershed in the history of exile they would have been sent to Katorga, which is the penal labor regime that, that is instituted early in um, Peter the Great's uh, reign. And this involved sending people uh, to work primarily as miners and smelterers, but to do other jobs in what was rapidly becoming to be uh, the metallurgical you know, heartland of, of, of Russia. This is in the Urals and the Demidov factories, or more 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 often uh to the metallurgical um uh metallurgical industries in Nurchinsk which is the area just just to the east of Lake Baikal now the 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 purposes that these pur various purposes now this leads into uh one of the the very big arguments that you're making in this book and that is is placing the exile system within what Michel Foucault calls um the governmentality Right. Now right. talk about what governmentality is and, and how does it shed light on the Tsarist period? Well, governmentality, according to Michel Foucault, and he creates with what actually, you know, initially is just a kind of casual Foucauldian coining of terminology. He creates this whole field that has actually gone on to, to spur some considerably interesting scholarship. But it, but it boils down to... Uh, the notion of a kind of bureaucratizing process that at the same time not only empowers the state and and takes power away from what Foucault characterized as the previous form of sovereign power, but it also results in the creation of what Foucault called in the singular population. And this is a very interesting trend that I think I've been able to um, identify by, by my research on the, on the exile system, is that we see, especially with um, the 1822 uh, Siberian reforms of Speransky, but also different measures during this time, the creative ministerial government in, in 1802 and, and so on, creation of ministerial government. Um, but anyways, w Russia is, just like the rest of Europe at that time, undergoing the transformation into a modern bureaucratic state. And yet at the same time, what you had in Russia was a very um, anachronistic but, but also still quite powerful uh, and viable um, sovereign power um, because the Romanovs were, were refusing to give up their traditional power in the way that power had devolved from the French monarchy certainly from the British monarchy by the early 19th century and so on. And so what I try to argue is that as we get into this period of exile, 1823 to 1861, there is a struggle. There's a great deal of tension between, on the one hand, 
the governmentalizing processes that involve the state apparatus, ministerial forms of government, a professional bureaucracy, all those things that we somewhat take for granted as moderns, as aspects of, of the bureaucratic state, and the fact that you had, especially during most of those years, a very powerful autocrat in the person of Nicholas I. Mm-hmm. Who has a love-hate relationship with these, this bureaucracy. He certainly does. He, he, he wants the, the bureaucracy to do what it's told. He relies upon the bureaucracy because he himself knows, as a military man, that the empire and its machinery is too big for one man to control any longer. Um, and so he knows that he alone can't make all the decisions. On the other hand, because he is uh, as obsessive-compulsive as Peter the Great was, he has to control everything. You know, he, he doesn't trust government to function. Uh, he also, too, has this kind of martial fantasy of turning um, Russia into a giant regimented society. And much of this comes out of what I think if I, you know, I do a little sort of psychoanalyzing here, but I think it comes out of two things. It comes out of the the trauma of having been invaded by Napoleon in 1812 and having the second capital essentially burned to the ground, an event that I think is is akin to what happened to Russia in the 20th century with the German invasion. And then secondly, of course, there is on, on basically Nicholas the first first day on the job an attempt to kill him an attempt to kill him, and not only him and his family, by the Decembrists. And so he wants to make sure that everything is in its place. He wants to make sure that everything is regimented. And so he knows that he is dependent upon the bureaucracy, but he also knows that these bureaucrats, many of them, are incredible screw-ups, that these guys can't be depended on. Uh, that they are drunks, that they are womanizers, that they are, are you know, embezzlers, that they are this and that, that they aren't professionals. And so this is a period where, as W. Bruce Lincoln himself wrote about, there is a transitional phase going on. And what I argue is that many of the problems that beset exile, the institution, the system, but also the exiles themselves, the poor, hapless thousands that get sent into the maw of this penological system, are a result of these growing pains, these tensions between the transition from a sovereign form of power to a governmental, or if you will, a bureaucratic governmentalist form of power. And it's not like there is a, there is a strict kind of uh, either or situation or there's a there's a smooth transition and this is the thing where where Foucault is very helpful with with regard to his ideas about governmentality is that in other words you you have power negotiations and so in certain areas and under certain circumstances sovereign power is um, on the on the uh, you know holds the day and in certain other areas, governmentality and the bureaucracy holds the day. But there's nothing static about this. There is a constant movement. And what I try to do in the book is to demonstrate that and then to show how that, uh, that struggle is played out at the ground, ground level with regard, as I said, to the local officials in, in Siberia 
and to the people that they are administering. This tension that you point out uh, really developing or at least flourishing under Nicholas I, I mean, in a way, Russia has yet to really get over this tension between sovereign power in the form of whether it's a general secretary or a, a president and its bureaucracy. I mean, I, I, I can think of speeches and statements by Putin and Medvedev, which show a, different, a, a similar kind of love-hate relationship with their bureaucrats. Sure, absolutely. And that's what's fascinating about looking at this period in Russian history is that I think it does give us uh, insights or add to our insights about what is still going on in Russia. There is still this tension between what is essentially sovereign autocratic power, largely in the person of Putin these days, who, who incidentally, I was just thinking before this interview began that here again is another kind of strange materialization of the Peter the First Nicholas Absolutely. the First character. I actually think he's very. I, he reminds me of Nicholas the First in a lot of ways. Yeah, he's very like him. He's very much like him. And 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 and, and the thing is, is is there is not just for Russians, but particularly for Russians, it seems a kind of appeal in having that type of leader as a leader. So we we need to recognize that that this is not just you know, a guy who's who's trying to, to control everything, he is, in a sense, dependent upon and welcomed by a large proportion of those who are under him, both his his uh, regular um, civilian subjects, but also to the professional men serving under him. So so Nicholas emerges in my book a little bit, I think, as, as, as a kind of tragic figure, because even had he wanted to, um, you know, Give up more power and uh, and and perhaps uh, rule more like let's just say for purposes of the argument an American president. He didn't, and he, and he had good reason for not thinking that he couldn't. He he didn't really have the apparatus in place to to do that. And one of the reasons for that, and this is why I spend the first few pages of the introduction. Uh, giving an overview of the geography is that because the Russian empire was so darn large. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it was enormous. And, and the lines of communication too, I mean, really uh, up until the late 20th century and to some extent even now are just non-existent. Exactly. I mean, they, I, I'm, I, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think there was a completed road connecting the maritime coast, i.e. Vladivostok, and the interior of Siberia until about the 1990s. Yeah. So, so you literally couldn't drive, let's say, from Irkutsk to Vladivostok in a car. It would have been impossible. So, so we can only imagine what it was like in the early 19th century. You know, um, it it was darn near impossible to administer. And on top of this, the uh, the Tsarist government was spending a huge proportion of the budget on its military. Again, because of the trauma of the Napoleonic Wars, it felt that it needed to have a standing army of between 800,000 and 1 million men. Now, this was simply gigantic. It's, it's gigantic even for these days. And so the, the resources that, that, um, that Nicholas was devoting to the military meant that there, you didn't have the resources to properly, um, uh, properly uh, uh, man the, 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 the apparatus of the exile system. So everywhere that you look in Siberia, um, you're dealing with these administrations that are woefully undermanned and therefore woefully incapable of trying to um, manage or institute even 
the system, the Speranskius system that is legislated in 1822. So the entire um, the entire pro problem is 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 really uh, there from the beginning during this period. And in a sense, what I talk about in the years that follow is is just the the chaos that results from this this concatenation of, of various factors. Now you say in in following, I think from Foucault that the too many too often we focus on institutions and not on the practices of those institutions. Now, given the situation that uh, the Nikolaivan government and the Tsarist government in general had in administering the population, how did they administer the exile population? I guess there would be a couple of answers. One of that, one of the way was that there were periodic uh, revisions, revisi, uh, that were conducted. And this consisted of sending uh, an official uh, from Petersburg out to the various administrations. And a revision was kind of a, a combination review, census, accounting um, kind of uh, endeavor, where this official would, would probe the activities of the local administration. Excuse me. And more times than not, he would find out that things were completely messed up there. Uh, he'd find out that there, you know, the money that had been set aside to be, build these, let's say, um, exile settlements had all been embezzled. Uh, he would find, uh, you know, that that nothing, uh, n there weren't enough funds and so on. But there was also, too, because of the huge logistical problems, he would become painfully aware of the fact that Petersburg really had no clue as to what re life was like on the ground. But because you had such a rigidly hierarchical system, no one could really get across to Nicholas because he himself didn't really want to face reality that, you know, that, 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 that it was largely a problem of funding. So time and again, they would try to terrorize local officials into doing their jobs better. Now, they wouldn't shoot them. It wasn't like you know, Stalin was on the scene yet. But what they would do is they'd fire these guys. They'd bring them before uh, courts back in Petersburg. Usually uh, everybody would get off more or less scot-free because of the corruption that existed even in Petersburg. But that was one way, is that they simply tried to scare people uh, with various threats into doing their jobs better. Which, of course, if I, if I may, which, of course, only reaffirms the need for the sovereign power. Yeah, exactly. Right, right, exactly. That's the thing. You know, it, and, and, and in a sense, you know, y you had to have, I mean, there's this interesting thing that I found that upon his ascension to the throne, Nicholas I's uh, court meddler uh, minted a coin that had a, a picture of this kind of all-seeing eye at the top of a pyramid, very much like the, the image that appears on uh, American dollar bills, I guess. Um but it was kind of like, you know, from the Lord of the Rings, you had the Lord <laughs> Sauron, you know, gazing out over the land of Mordor. And the image was that, you know, that, that Nicholas hoped to create was that no one could escape his eye. But, of course, everybody did because they realized, as Russians had for many centuries, that you could literally get away with murder there. And, and, it, and if, if it was easy to do that, let's say, in European Russia, it was a heck of a lot easier to do it in eastern Siberia. So you had a real problem here with enforcing 
this systematization that really kind of existed only on paper. And that, and the other thing too was that Nicholas contributed to this because of his insistence on sovereign authority that by its very nature supersede, superseded any notion of the law being, um, being um, you know, unassailable. That in other words, the law was above everybody. Well, in Russia, that's never been established in the same way it has in, in Western uh, European culture or in American culture. So you, you had a real problem with trying to get people to follow the rules because they could quite honestly say, well, no one follows the rules, not even the czar. But the flip side of this was because of this acute lack of personnel, um, official personnel, the um, regime also depended very, very heavily upon the starozhili or the long-term, as they were considered to be, the long-term Russian residents, the peasants of Siberia. And this is a kind of unique peasantry. They were quite distinct from their European Russian brethren because, first of all, uh, they were not serfs. Serfdom didn't exist for the most part in Siberia. Um, and, and secondly, they were, part, largely as a result of that, quite hardworking and quite dependent and so on. So the, uh, the authorities would, in the absence of any kind of management personnel, would dump their um, exile charges on these peasants and basically expect the peasants to take them. Were a lot of these peasants old believers? There were uh, there was a significant old believer population, particularly in um, the Transbaikal region. Though actually, Transbaikalia tended not to be a destination for those exiles assigned to the land. Uh, that region, as I said, was largely reserved for those who were sent to Katorga to penal labor. However, uh, when someone managed to live long enough to complete his penal labor term, he was expected to then somehow become a settler in the region of those Nurchinsk mines and so on. Now, the problem was, and this goes back, again, to what I had talked about earlier with regard to uh, the administrative exile of, of basically innocent peasants that was initiated by Catherine the Great and Elizabeth Petrovna. The problem was is that either from the outset when these people were first sent to Siberia or after they had completed, let's say, their term of penal labor, these people were usually so broken physically or mentally that they, they were dependents. They couldn't work on a farm. They couldn't make a living. They had to depend upon the handouts of others. In fact, what was found out early in the 19th century, as if no one had really understood this at all, was that landowners were quite naturally taking advantage of the, uh, the system that um, Elizabeth Petrovna and, and Catherine the Great had set up to, to essentially purge their, uh, their, um, their villages that they owned of elderly and mentally and physically handicapped people so that you've got to you got to see, and I've actually this is one of the articles that I've got soon forthcoming in Siberica about this. You've got a tendency whereby, given the absence of a kind of welfare system and given the um, economic exigencies and increasingly increasingly uh, economic demands imposed upon the the village peasants after uh, the mid 
18th century, you have a number of factors that result in the expulsion of the most weakest and dependent members of Russia to Siberia to actually get rid of these people because you don't have anywhere else to put them. It's a horrifying picture. And we can only imagine that that probably less than half the people that began the march to Siberia ever even completed it. Those people were probably they just probably died on the way. Now this is a good this is a good reminder and I, I interviewed uh, last week I interviewed Steve Barnes who who wrote a book on the gulag and and one of the things of course he reminds us and I think it goes with the SARS exile system too is that the majority of people who are sent into exile or in the gulag are either uh, regular criminals or in the in the SARS case the invalids and the indigent and the unwanted are kind of brushed out but in most of our minds when we think of these these systems and the, and the SARS excise system too is is politicals. Yes, the focus yes. is on politicals, and politicals actually play a big role in in your book. They um, do. You you talk about the Decemberists and also uh, Polish uh, exiles uh, who were participating in the Polish uprising of eighteen thirty to eighteen thirty one, um, which is a large number, ten to twenty thousand are sent. The Poles are sent in, in yeah. exile. Uh, talk about the role. Uh, politicals and and them being sent to to exile and uh what does it say about how the government regarded political crimes yeah i i do want to just very quickly sure. make the point however that the vet the largest cohort by far and the cohort that accounts for this great upsurge in the annual number of exiles after 1822 happens to be the homeless it happens to be these vagrants uh, known as the Baradyagi. So, for example, 30% of all those exiled to Siberia uh, during the 19th century, if not more, are essentially homeless people. And that was, the, that was a major crime then. And, and so what's really interesting uh, is that I think in many ways we have a parallel between the stresses that the persecution of homelessness placed upon the Tsarist exile, exile system and the stresses that the war on drugs has placed upon the American penitentiary system mm. uh, since, you know, for the last three decades. Is this so, why you dedicate the book to the victims of the war on drugs? Well, that is one reason. Oh, that's interesting. I, I was wondering because, about that. Yeah, because I do, because I, well, the, the victims of the war on drugs, because I, because I hope to kind of spark a, a, a kind of uh, view about what's happened in this country. I mean, we have the world's largest prison population, both in absolute terms and in terms of a per, per capita uh, basis. And the vast uh, majority of those people, or quite a, quite a significant amount of them, are essentially perpetrators of blameless crimes in the same way that, or victimless crimes, in the same way uh, that they were during the 19th century in Russia. So there's a very interesting, I think, lesson to be learned here. Um, as to now nowadays we wouldn't think about putting someone in prison if they were homeless right or, hope, hope not <laughs> uh, but 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 of course this was a major crime and it wasn't just in Russia it was all over uh, the modernizing world and this also fits into population management too precisely because again one of the things that the state and governmentality is intent upon doing is fixing and locating population it needs to count these people it needs to tax them. It needs to uh, it needs to draft them into the military. So it needs to know where you are, and when you have a bunch of people walking willy nilly all over the empire, it's very aggravating for the authorities. They don't like that. 
So what we began to see in, in Russia, certainly from Peter's time on, but I think it, it, it becomes quite acute during the 19th century, is this literally this war on homelessness. And it is largely this war on homelessness that accounts for the explosive uh, explosing of the population of the exile uh, system. So I just wanted to to, to make that little uh, political point. I guess. Very very important. <laughs> but but yes, the the other thing too is that there are some significant political figures exiled to Siberia. Now this is uh, you know we have been certainly as well as a result of both. Russian scholarship, Soviet scholarship, uh, as well as American sculpture, been a little bit misled by, uh, you know, the impression that that most of those or a, even a significant number of those exiled during the 19th century were political offenders. In fact, they weren't. Um, uh, you know, it was only about up until 1900, only about two percent of the exile population consisted of people that we could call, and even that the regime itself called political offenders. But the first major group during the period that I'm looking at here in the book, of course, are the are the Decembrists. And what I found that was interesting was that, for all their great renown amongst uh, American students of Russia, there's actually quite a little bit only written about them in English. And those works tend to be rather dated. And then even more interestingly, for me at least, was that there's almost nothing written about them uh, once they get to Siberia. And so we're left with, you know, a kind of image that comes out of Pushkin's, um, you know, famous poem uh, about being sent to Siberia and toiling in the mines and that type of thing which is a product of, of the literary romantic age that he was a part of, but it corresponds almost nothing to, to reality. So, so the fact of the matter is, is that these noblemen uh, were sent to exile, that they were put in these enormous prisons, uh, fortresses, I should say. The first one was at Chita, and the second one was at Petrovsk Zavod, both of which were in Transbaikalia. But at the end of the day, these guys did no work at all, really, for the most part. Uh, they actually had servants that they made out of the, uh, out of the uh, regular convicts that, that were there with them at Petrovsk Zavod, uh, and they organized what they called uh, an academy. They had a library that consisted of some 10,000 volumes. They taught local children, and they, they um, injected into Russian Siberian life for the first time uh, uh, a cultural, intellectual uh, uh, series of, of, of events and the phenomena and so on that are justly renowned. Um, when I went there, when I was doing my research in Irkutsk, I remember the uh, Dejernaya, who was in the reading room where I was doing my research, and I kept on asking for these documents for, you know, criminals. I wanted more stuff on the criminals and stuff, the regular convicts. And she said, well, why don't you study the Decembrists? Don't you know the Decembrists? You know, the Decembrists were here. And I go, yes, I know that, but I'm really interested in these regular criminals. And, and I remember she began to become very suspicious of me. As right. Like myself or some sort of uh, ex-con or something. <laughs> but, but yes, it, it's important to know that, you know, at the end of the day, these, um, these um, Decembrists that were sent out there did not, behave heroically in every case. Um, sometimes they they were quite dastardly. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, as, as Nietzsche says, they were human all too human. I mean, they were doing the things that 
any of us would do probably if we were in those situations. And I try to tell uh, the various stories about them and make the point at the same time uh, that that there is a mytho history that uh, we need to cut through if we want to properly understand uh, what happened to the Decembrists in exile. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned earlier um, that another aspect of the system was forced labor, labor or the Catorga uh, uh, system. Um, talk about life in these labor colonies, and how did labor fin figure into the penal system and the punishment system in Tsarist Russia? Well, it was, once you get to the 19th century, again, because of the lack of, of of uh, consistently followed regulations, there was a great deal of bleed over between uh, the Katorga regime and um, and simple exile, Silka. Um, the Katorga regime was much more of a kind of regime in the sense that it had a dedicated Katorga administration. Um, it, the, admi the, 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 the mines uh, and many of the, uh, and the factories, the Zavodi, uh, would be operated by a, a military um, soldier, an officer in the army, um, and the mines themselves in Nerchensk were run by the imperial cabinet and so on. So everything was much more regimented there. Um, and uh, you get different pictures at different times as to what went on in these locations. Um, Certainly, what one picture that I have, and I think this is an accurate picture, is that the Zavod, or the factory, that again, usually centered upon a, a, a mine and a smeltery, but oftentimes also could have been a, a textile mill or something, or a salt-producing uh, factory. But in any case, it was a kind of small, autarkic, armed uh, camp. Now, I don't want to say that it was a concentration camp, I don't think it was comparable to the Lagheri or the camps in the Gulag system. I don't think it was that severe. Uh, there, I don't get the impression in, in many cases that there were even walls around uh, the prisoners sometimes, um, though certainly in other cases there were. Um, but it depended greatly upon what kind of uh, commander was in charge of what kind of location. And there was uh, one um, specific commander of the Nurchins camps who was uh, infamous for his day in the 19, 1850s. And his name was Razgildeyev. And he actually uh, became renowned in, in Katorga songs and so on. And he really uh, took a, a, a delightful interest in, um, in flogging uh, his convicts. Uh, he resurrected the, uh, the the tradition that had kind of fallen out of use during Alexander the First reign of branding letters on the on the convicts' faces so as to mark them. And this was not exactly a brand. What they did is they actually used a, a an incising device that cut the letter into the man's forehead, and then they would rub gunpowder into that, and then eventually that gunpowder would turn blue. So this man had this impermeable mark of cane on his forehead. On the other hand, though, um, I, there is plenty of evidence to show that as the mines began to uh, essentially get mined out, as basically all the silver that could have been gotten using the, the, the technology of the day had been gotten, 
uh, there was nothing for these convicts to do. So we, we come to the end of the 1850s with a kind of crisis in the, in the Katorga system where you've got a bunch of, uh, you've got a supernumerary amount of, of convicts, but there's not enough labor for them. And so the danger is not that they're being worked to death. It's that they are not being worked at all, and they're just lying around in these barracks. But at the same time, because the mines themselves aren't producing money, the regime itself has cut the budgets for these places. So the conditions, the food supplies and that type of thing are becoming quite problematic. And that sets the stage for what I'll hopefully talk about in the third book uh, for the decision to establish a, a penal colony on Sakhalin. Hmm. Wow. Um, now, 19, uh, 1845, I should say, uh, seems to be a turning point with the adoption of the Code of Criminal and Correctional Punishments. I'm assuming that this is a, a way to systematize or at least attempt to systematize uh, the penal system. Um, talk about some of the policies enacted in this code and, and their impact on Russian penal practice. Well, there's a real attempt at this point, and there had been for a number of years, to, um, I mean, there was al already a recognition that Katorga was not serving its intended functions. Um, even even in its heyday, I don't think Katorga was a, was a, was a particularly money-making kind of enterprise, let's put it that way. So what the Ulogenier um, attempts to do is to legislate a uh, more clearly the types of punishments that are available to judges, and it also makes provisions for a greater reliance upon uh, assigning um, 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 ne'er do wells, especially if they're pradyagi, if they're they're vagrants, to penal battalions, labor battalions. Uh, and also to assign them to um, prisons, which are beginning, just a beginning maybe to crop up on the horizon, but I'll, I'll come to this point in a minute. Unfortunately, what the 1845 Ulogenier fails to do, and this had actually been certainly Speransky's attempt as early, uh, desire as early as 1822, it doesn't abolish administrative exile. So you've still got fully half of the, all those people that are being sent each year into Siberia being sent there through extrajudicial procedures that are under the control of civilian authorities. And the, in, a, in a very real sense, the state is its a case, you might say, of the tail wagging the dog with that. So the Ulogenier doesn't do anything with regard to that. But the other problem, too, is it's... It's kind of a mark of the hollowness of the regime by this point that on the surface there appears to be a kind of regulatory system. But in fact, the Ulogenier is a very, is a very poorly constructed law code. And this was recognized even at the time uh, by, by, by the, the emerging crop of Russian jurists, is that it's not really a, a very well-written well law code. And so... The other problem, too, and this is kind of sadly humorous, is that the law code tells judges, you know, for this and this, for such and such crime, you sentence this man to prison. But the problem was, is that a, a kind of ambitious plan to build a series of prisons that would have been modeled on that of the Walnut Street Jail, for example, that had been created in Pennsylvania uh, in the early 19th century, this ambitious plan was scuttled because it was costing too much. 
sentence. So, so a, a planned series of prisons that would have provided for sites other than Siberia to which to send your, your, your convicts don't exist. You have a law code that tells um, judges to send prisoners or to send convicts, some convicts, to these prisons that don't exist. And then the other problem, too, is that the penal battalions, that whole thing is beginning to run its course as well because there's just not enough work in the empire at that point because by now you're, you're beginning to deal with a, a pretty rapidly growing um, civilian population. So th there's not the, the need for convict labor. And so as a result, what happens is in the years that follow the 1845 Oulogenier, judges look at this confusing law code, they look at their options, and they began to do the same thing that they've always done. They just dispatched these people off to Siberia. So it's, it's like the 1822 reforms. It's, an, it's significant because it represents an effort, a hiccup along the road towards the establishment of governmentality and routinized bureaucracy. But it also, like the 1822 reforms, demonstrates the enormous problems that Russia has always had with trying to establish rule by law and order, rule by regulation, and the kind of functioning bureaucracy that is expected of a modern state. Well, it's a fascinating book, um, and we've taken a lot of your time uh, talking about it. And there's a lot that, of course, I, I didn't get to, um, but I encourage people to read it, especially the the way the exile system fits into this dichotomy that you've um, uh, elucidated between sovereignty and attempts to establish some sort of governmentality of the, the Russian system. So uh, what are you working on now? What's in the future? Well, I'm, I'm coming to uh, the end of the first draft of my second translation. And this is a, this is a big two-volume book uh, called... Uh, in Russian, Vimirya Atvarzhonik, or translated as uh, In the World of the Outcasts. And it was uh, a memoir, a, a kind of Romana clef, you might say, uh, that was written by a political exile, a true political exile. He had been a member of the People's Will, and his name was uh, Pyotr Yakubovich. And he published this memoir uh, as was the the trend at that time in a series of uh, you know thick journal uh, uh, installments, and I believe if I'm if I remember correctly, it first came out in 1896. It was then republished as a book in 1903, I think, and it was very very popular in its day. Uh, it was it was uh, it contributed to a growing awareness by. Uh, not just uh, the Russian liberals, but the literati in general, that there were serious, profound problems with the, with the country's uh, uh, penal system and so on. And so, um, in a sense, it continues my focus on the penal exile system, but it also, too, is, I think, uh, like the Dorashevich book that I translated, an eminently kind of readable book. Um, it, it was a very important book, and interestingly enough, it was actually republished during the thaw. It was republished the, the year um, that Khrushchev was forced to step down in 1963, if I'm not mistaken. I hope I get that date right. Um, so it, it comes out um, at a, an important time in Soviet history when, of course, the Certainly. Soviets are beginning to deal with the reality of the gulag system. 
Um, so yeah, I think there's there's a little bit to be made of that. But hopefully I'll get this thing done and and uh, maybe as early as next year or or maybe a year and a half from now, uh, it'll be published. Um, and I'm looking forward to to, to getting that done. Uh, and as I said, uh, down the line, not not in the immediate future, but I've got that book on George Kennan that I want to try to return to. Well, I look forward to, to the uh, translation of the memoir. I'm always looking for interesting sources for teaching. Um, yeah. So that that's really great. Well, thank you very much for talking to me. Well, thank you very much, Sean. I appreciate it. I've been speaking with Andrew Gentis about his book, Exile, Murder, and Madness in Siberia, 1823 to 1861. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Once again, I'm Sean Guillory, your host for New Books in Russia and Eurasian Studies. If you're interested in hearing more interviews by the New Books Network, please go to newbooksnetwork.com. And be sure to tune in next time when I talk to Frank Weislow about his book, Tales of Imperial Russia, The Life and Times of Sergei Vita, 1849 to 1915. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>